What a week, right? You know, I was thinking this week about how um, I often love to splash water on my children. It's usually, I would say, around the kitchen sink while I'm doing dishes. If they get too close, sometimes it's when I'm putting my contacts in. I see them in the mirror and I squirt them with the contact bottle. It's got some distance to it. Sometimes in the summer, if I'm feeling particularly Baptist, you might say, I might even give them a a gentle dunk. And every time I do, I yell the same thing, remember your baptism. They hate it. They run. They scream. But what a week. I preached on this before. What a week to revisit why and what it is about our baptisms that is worth remembering. After all, that seems to be what is on Paul's mind as he arrives in our passage today there in Ephesus. We pick Paul up here in the story of Acts where he is on the first leg of his third and final missionary journey. He has just hoofed it by foot from Antioch clear across Asia Minor to the western coast of what is modern-day Turkey to that town of Ephesus perched there on the Aegean Sea. And before he even goes to find a hotel room, much less a synagogue or church to preach in, which is one of Paul's favorite things to do anytime he arrives in a new place, he comes across disciples. And this conversation ensues about both the efficacy and the meaning of baptism. Paul asks him, now, did you all receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? And they say, the what? The Holy Spirit, wait, wait, the who? What baptism did you receive, Paul asked them. John's baptism, they say. Oh, John's baptism. That's the one about repentance and preparation and and waiting for for that Messiah to come, right? Yeah, 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 That's, that's the one, they say. Well, Jesus, Paul tells them, Jesus is the one. And when you're baptized in Jesus' name, you receive the Holy Spirit. Now Paul seems as much at a loss of words as I often am to to adequately describe exactly what the Holy Spirit is, but but he seems to be trying to tell them that, that when you receive the Holy Spirit at your baptism, something happens. Something changes. Right, this, this, this shift happens within you from this, this passive waiting life to this active, this active life where you are, are literally participating in God's work. For Paul, it seems Christian baptism is both a promise and a calling. 
right? The promise is that we are never alone. That in the person of Jesus Christ and in the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are promised that we are never outside God's love. Surely here in this conversation Paul is having, he has in mind the story of Jesus' own baptism. When the skies part and the Spirit descends like a dove and a voice cries out, This is my Son, whom I love. Likewise, in in our baptisms, we receive a promise that we are never outside God's love. But there's also a calling. In our baptisms, Paul is saying we are called to live lives like Jesus. Right? Something changes after the baptism, both of Jesus and of these disciples. After Jesus' baptism, he is sent into the wilderness by the Spirit. And after 40 days, he is sent into the world where his life is different than the 30 years before his baptism. He is a changed man. And he will live the rest of his days, rather, in that change. The disciples here in this story, when Paul baptizes them with the Holy Spirit, they are changed. They prophesy. They speak in tongues, the scripture tells us. Likewise, we are called to change. When we are baptized, we are called to live lives that reflect Jesus' life, humility, kindness, service, sacrifice. Right? We are called to lives that, that are supposed to, to speak out against violence. Right? Jesus is born into this, this empire that literally stays in power solely through violence and intimidation. But if you look at any story of Jesus' life, you will not find that repeated anywhere. Jesus speaks out against violence at every turn. We're called to name the danger of hatred of others. Jesus is constantly making friends with, with people who are friendless because they're hated. They're hated by others. And Jesus' life reflects that that is not how we are called to live as his disciples. He denounces prejudice. He pays attention to his words. Right, The reason we are still reading and pondering parables 2,000 years later is because Jesus knew that words and the way we use them matter. Paul is teaching us that baptism Our baptism is both a promise and a call. I've recently become engrossed in the life of a a man named Esau Jenkins. I was reading a magazine a month or so ago, and I came across this beautiful black and white photo of these gorgeous live oaks. And the description underneath the photo said this photo was taken on Johns Island, South Carolina, not far from the place where a man named Esau Jenkins lived. And if you don't know much about Esau Jenkins, the caption read, 
you should go read something. I took the challenge. And it's led me down this rabbit hole where I'm, I'm trying to find out more and more information about this man. Esau Jenkins was born in 1910 there on John's Island. His, uh, his childhood was not an easy one, nor was the childhood of many of his neighbors. It was one dominated by poverty, by illiteracy, by racial injustice. Later, as an adult, he would give an interview to the Charleston News and Courier there in Charleston, South Carolina, where he remembered how in his childhood, white farmers would routinely force black students like himself to leave school early for planting season. He remembered how black men, his neighbors there on John's Island, were regularly shot over minor offenses. He remembers how his father would warn him about openly contradicting local whites by telling him the white folks don't like it when you do that. His childhood was not an easy one. But in the 1930s, he, he befriended a local pastor, a man named the Reverend G.C. Brown. G.C. Brown taught Esau how to improve his reading, his writing. He taught him history, grammar, and he taught him the gospel of Jesus Christ. From that relationship forward, Esau Jenkins' life was transformed. He devoted his days to transforming his community. He did so many things that's almost hard to account for all of them, but on the list are the fact that he began a co-op grocery store in a community that no other grocery store would consider serving, but this was a store where neighbors could come and they could keep tabs if they couldn't quite pay for what they had or they could barter with their neighbors one thing for another. He opened a credit union for his community, community that banks that day would not regularly serve. He began a clinic for migrant workers who would regularly come and work the field seasonally there on John's Island, but often had no place to receive health care when they were injured. He started a school later in life. He was a civil rights act activist. He personally befriended Martin Luther King Jr. And whenever Martin Luther King Jr. would come, he would regularly stay with Esau Jenkins. But one of the things that Esau Jenkins is best known for to this day was buying a fleet of VW buses. You see, Esau Jenkins, before beginning that school, recognized that, that most of the children there on John's Island had no real opportunity for education. So he and his wife, Janie, they, they began saving up their meager earnings to purchase VW buses. And with these buses, they would drive between Johns Island and downtown Charleston, South Carolina, so that children in their community could go to school. And once they started getting kids into school, they began using those buses also to get people in their community to jobs that otherwise they would not be able to get to there in Charleston, South Carolina. And the most amazing thing about these buses 
is at that time there were all sorts of laws on the books that were meant to disenfranchise people like Esau Jenkin and his community. And so Esau Jenkin, who had learned to read and write, would use those bus trips between Johns Island and Charleston, South Carolina, to teach his neighbors how to read and write too so that they could pass the literacy exams and register to vote. Here's the thing, though. On the back of these VW buses, Esau painted his life motto so that anyone driving up behind these buses, anyone passing them in a parking lot, would see the motto by which Esau Jenkins lived this life. They've literally cut off the back of one of these VW buses and put it in the Smithsonian now. And you can read the paint, handwritten scroll there on the back that reads, Love is progress. Hate is expensive. Love is progress. Hate is expensive. I kept reading about Esau Jenkins, and I kept asking myself, how? How in the world does Esau Jenkins have a motto like that? Because Esau had every reason to hate, no matter the cost. Right here is a man who knew true darkness. He lived alongside his neighbors in a world that sadly oftentimes seems not to be much changed today. A world that often judged him not by the content of his character, not by the intellect of his mind, not by the compassion of his heart, not even by his faith, but by the color of his skin. Right here was a man who had every reason to mistrust the system, to see conspiracy around every corner, to label his enemies with every name in the book, to swear up and down, to do harm to those who had done so much harm to him and his community, both with their actions and with their ambivalence. I mean, think about how many weeks like this one Esau and people like him have felt like they have lived through. He had every reason to hate. And instead, we get a bus and a life that is committed to dismantling evil and changing the world, not through hate, through love. How? How is it possible for there to be people like Esau Jenkins? People like Martin Luther King Jr. People like C.T. Vivian. People like John Lewis, Mother Teresa, Oscar Romero, Dorothy Day, Desmond Tutu. How is it possible for us to live like that? And I found my answer this week. It was right there in front of me all along. Here's how it was possible. They remembered their baptism. 
they remembered how when they were baptized, how when we were baptized, it was not into that wait around and hope for better baptism. It was not John's baptism. No, Esau Jenkins remembered the baptism he received was one of both promise and call. The promise that he was beloved promise that we are beloved despite ourselves, forgiven before we even know what we need forgiveness for. He remembered that promise. And he remembered the call that comes with it. The call to live a life like Jesus. A life that if we were to boil down to a bumper sticker, would probably read, love is progress, hate is expensive. Listen, I've been troubled this past week. Since Wednesday afternoon, I, I felt angry, felt sad, felt confused, I felt worried. And frankly, I still don't really have words. All I really know to say is this. What a week. What a year. What a world. And what a time to remember our baptisms. Remember your baptism. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.